The sound of love bugs hitting my car sounds like rain. I apologize if that is a disgusting description or skeeves you out, but I cannot ignore what was happening. I was in the Everglades, as I am wont to do, headed towards the Big Cypress Reservation, where about 600 Seminole Indians live and work. They live just east of where the first oil well in Florida struck oil, and north of the Big Cypress National Preserve. While on the hunt for one story, I found another. South of Lake Okeechobee and miles from any other major city, the swamps and the wetlands make up your entire horizon. There is no doubt that I love Florida's environments and natural splendor, as they call it, but it had been over an hour since I saw a building that wasn't part of a farm. I am way out there. There's construction on a lot of the roads leading to slowdowns, but few other cars. It's just me and the water out here. The car I'm driving is white and freshly cleaned. When I stopped to get gas north of Okeechobee, I had to move quickly to prevent love bugs from getting into the car. I figured that my proximity to the lake was why I was being swarmed. The levee was the only thing that stood between me and our central lake. The swarms striking the car were in small amounts, and my wiper fluid handled it pretty well. They dissipated for a little while. But then, as I drew closer and closer to my destination, the love bugs were coming, and they were coming in swarms. If you can't handle some extensive bug talk, this might not be the episode for you. I won't play any creepy, crawly audio, but I'm definitely going to talk about them a lot. Because bugs are part of Florida life. It's so inherent to our culture and to our life that bug spray is sold in the same displays as sunscreen. You live in Florida long enough, you know to avoid stagnant water at dusk, because that's where the mosquitoes are. You know palmetto bugs sneak through cracks when it rains. You know that spiders are unavoidable, and eventually you start to know which ones are more concerning than others. And you know that every April, as our weather is perhaps at its very best for the whole year, the love bugs arrive. Really, springtime in Florida is unlike anything else. Days are in the 70s or 80s, and even when it pushes into the 90s, it's not humid or suffocating. A rare chill could hit, and you can wear that nice jacket one more day of the year. But with every blessing is a curse, and the love bugs are our curse. My car is getting pelted. They're hitting four or five every second. I get a phone call as I'm passing through and I can barely hear the other person because of the consistent splat of bugs on my windshield. It is deeply upsetting, especially when you can see them coming way ahead of you. They are mostly black in form with little red thoraxes and they sit thick in the air and they plaster the car. By the time I arrive at the reservation, my car is covered in bug corpses. I will not describe it in detail to spare my stomach and yours, but the whole front, the grill, even the side mirrors were covered. It was not pretty. My car was a love bug graveyard. It's a familiar experience to Floridians, a rite of passage to any young Florida driver. Nothing is quite so difficult as scrubbing your car relentlessly to get bug guts off the windshield. Trust me, I learned. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, Plesia Neoctica, called the honeymoon fly, the double-headed bug, or most commonly, the love bug. The mysterious little pest with the backstory unlike any other. It goes like this. Florida's mosquitoes are a lot to handle and always have been. 
Not only do they bite and draw blood, leaving incredible itchy welts behind, but they can carry diseases and they swarm. They're everywhere, especially in the spring and summer months. You can get bug spray and you can put out citronella candles, but they'll catch you when you least expect it. How do you manage a bug that is everywhere, all the time, always? Well, back in the 1950s, scientists working at the University of Florida decided to fight nature with nature. Humans clearly did not have the ability to fight the pests. We could have pesticides, but mosquitoes would still bounce back. What if we created a bug, spawned a new crossbreed, and made it to combat mosquitoes in Florida? This new bug would leave eggs in the spots mosquitoes leave eggs, and it would take up their habitat. Then, when the new bug was born, it would force the mosquitoes out of their ecosystems by eventually hunting and killing them until the bloodsucker was no more. They crossbred a fly with a sturdy body and a mosquito with attacking capabilities, and voila, a ferocious bug hunter known as the love bug was born. That's also why they have such a unique way of mating. Love bugs mate mid-air and afterwards stay connected. It is common to see love bugs on their own, but it's far more common to see them in these unusual pairs, flying attached to each other by their rear ends, like this unusual double-sized fly made up of two separate creatures. This is why they're called love bugs, and some reports say that there's even more crest terminology used, but I could not find any specifics. But something went wrong in the University of Florida lab back in the 50s. A breach in security led to an outbreak, and the bugs spread everywhere. The scientists at UF could not control their creation as the bugs migrated all the way south and then even north to the Gulf of Mexico as far as Texas. They never got control of the bugs and they were never even close to effective. Mosquitoes are still rampant in Florida. Instead of replacing one pest for another, we now have two. There's only one problem with all of that though. That origin story is completely false. They do mate midair and fly as one interconnected being afterwards, but the rest of that? Nonsense. If you grew up in Florida, you likely heard that story. I've even been told that non-Floridians know this origin story. I ran a poll asking friends if they had heard it as well. I wasn't sure what I expected, but I at least anticipated hearing some people, hopefully some that I had grown up with, had heard this story as well. Over a hundred people voted on the poll, people from all generations, and the response was overwhelming. Over three quarters of the respondents said that yes, they had heard that story. Only about 25 people had never heard this story about the love bug's origin. Some people informed me that they didn't even realize that the UF story was a myth. They still thought it was true. There were people of all ages saying they had heard the story, including people who weren't born in Florida, but grew up here. Where do we even hear stories like that? Urban legends are so fascinating wherein they sit on the border of the fantastic and the real. Folklore is intentionally otherworldly, more of a sharing of a narrative than a sharing of history. Folklore tells the story of a culture, of a people, or, or a shared story. But urban legends find a way to sit in that middle zone where we believe just enough of it to get by. Science experiments to create a special new bug sounds interesting, and sounds like something that could be possible, but creating a mosquito hunting pest that escapes and spreads throughout the country now that's science fiction. I know I heard the story as a kid, and I think that that is an indication as to why I initially believed it. I remember being told also that there was this special type of Tootsie Pop, and on the wrapper, there was a guy shooting an arrow at a star. 
If you got a Tootsie Pop with that on it, you could turn in the wrapper for a free Tootsie Pop. I asked no questions. I didn't ask why all my Tootsie Pops then had stars on them. I didn't ask why Tootsie Pop would instill such a rule. It's the sort of nonsense that you believe because you're eight and you believe anything you hear. But I know the Tootsie Pop story is false. I don't know when I realized it was false, but I was probably 11 or something and got a Tootsie Pop and went, oh wait, this is insane. But I never questioned the love bug story. As I got older, I sort of inherently knew it was false, but I never researched it, never confirmed my suspicions. Whether or not the myth was real didn't matter. I accepted love bugs as the fact and didn't care whether the story was real or not. The story itself goes back as far as the late 70s and possibly originated at the University of Florida itself. Some suspect that it was a story created by their rival, the Florida State University, as a means to disparage UF's credibility. Culturally, America's interest in science fiction was growing darker. The shiny era of early Star Trek sci-fi in the 60s was falling behind, and the dirtier, scarier, and more dangerous forms of the genre were blooming. Alien came out in 1979, and A Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick had come out in 1977. John Carpenter's brand of terrifying sci-fi horror was on the edge of taking over Pulp Fiction in the 80s, and the experiment gone wrong story, a la Frankenstein, had never really fallen out of style. Though the origins of the love bug myth can't really be defined, pop culture often bleeds into our urban legends. This Frankenstein bug unleashed onto Floridians by some well-meaning scientist screams 1980s cult sci-fi horror. Except that it's a love bug. They are comically harmless. It would be impossible for them to have the ability to take out a mosquito, as that would require some sort of aggressive element to their physiology. They are the simplest bugs in the world. They don't carry any diseases. They do not itch. They do not sting. Their sole purpose on this planet is to be born, mate, lay eggs, eat dead organic material, and then die about four days after they have been born or go splat on a car. 50 years ago, lovebugs were barely even here in Florida. We had them, but they were in such small numbers that they couldn't be considered a pest that they are now. A century ago, they weren't even really in this part of America at all. They were first spotted in North America in 1940 by a man named Dilbert Elmo Hardy, known as Elmo to his friends. He had as interesting of a life as he did a name. Picture your classic 40s era scientist with short hair parted down the middle, big glasses, and an awkward smile. That's Elmo. He was the foremost scientist on Dipterans, also known as the order Diptera which constitutes everything that we would call a fly. Technically, that's what a love bug is, despite its name. It is a fly, and it is sometimes called a march fly. Elmo was only 26 when he spotted the love bug and gave it that famous name. He was a born entomologist, that is the study of insects, and was tutoring students far older than him as just a freshman. During World War II, he worked at Morrison Field in West Palm Beach, Florida. It was an Air Force base, and he would prepare soldiers heading overseas for the dangers of malaria, especially if they were heading to a country where that was common. After a few more years of settling down, he was offered a choice, conduct research at the University of Florida or the University of Hawaii. Elmo went to Hawaii. It was 1948, and Hawaii had yet to be even named our 50th state. According to records before Elmo came to the islands, less than 200 flies had been cataloged and researched on the island. But Elmo spent over 30 years working to boost that number, and by the time he had published five volumes on the insects of Hawaii, just over 1,200 species had been catalogued. 
Elmo and his team had discovered just over a thousand species of flies on the islands. He lived there for another 54 years until he passed in Honolulu in 2002. Biographies of Elmo barely mention our love bug, if they do at all. Nearly every member of the Plesia genus was discovered by Elmo, all of our love bug's relatives. There are some all over the world, but only two types in the States. The first is our love bug, sometimes called the common love bug, Plesia nearctica. The other is Plesia americana, the American love bug. They look nearly identical with the same small size and red thorax. They were here way before our Florida or common love bug. The American love bug was here as far back as 1888. The American love bug is also far lesser in number and rarely seen in Florida and don't gravitate toward highways the same way that the common love bug does. Because of course they gravitate towards highways. The highway system is actually what some researchers believe brought the bugs all the way to Florida in the first place. There is a myth that love bugs are attracted to automobiles themselves, but they're actually attracted to automobile fumes. There is a chemical in the fumes that resembles the smell of decaying organic matter. Love bugs lay their eggs on this decaying organic matter, which is very common next to the highways as well. It is also believed that flies of all varieties are attracted to shiny surfaces. Basically, everything about a highway appeals to the love bug. Being coated in bug guts is not just bad luck. It is totally logical for the bugs to be there. Can I tell you that these bugs have so many myths around them? The University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences has been working across the state since 1964, striving to perfect agricultural sciences and ensure conservation in its relationship to farming, animals, and insects. I talked about them on the citrus episodes. They are currently trying to find a way to prevent greening. They have created several different documents about the love bug, and one is literally just a step-by-step -step breakdown of the myths associated with Plesia nearctica. The myths include, but are not limited to, love bugs mate the entire time they are coupled, the body fluids of love bugs are acidic and immediately dissolve automobile paint, love bugs have no significant natural enemies, Insecticides are effective in controlling love bugs, and of course, University of Florida researchers genetically engineered love bugs to kill mosquitoes. None of these are true. The love bugs live for three to four days. They only come out during the daytime. They mate on plants, they stay attached until they lay their eggs, and then they die. They have a few enemies, mostly in the form of bumblebees that are less likely to visit a plant if love bugs are near it. They exist in the state from April to May, lie dormant for a few months, then return in late August until early October. Then they return to dormancy. We have some of the most fascinating plants and animals in the state of Florida. For example, the mangrove. Mangroves have taken a spotlight in state news over the past few weeks. Mangroves border coasts around the world, but they sit in a massive density along our coasts, especially in the Everglades. However, scientists have started to see mangroves growing further north in Florida than they had previously. Mangroves have roots growing under salty water, which is unusual for plants, and fish often populate their massive roots that sit like a mini forest below the surface. The oceans are getting warmer, however, and the mangroves are adapting. There are historical records of them growing in St. Augustine, but it's happening now more than ever before. The mangroves are these adaptable, spectacular plants and are cornerstones of our ecosystem. If the Everglades are the organs of Florida, the mangroves are our skeleton. They keep it all in place. We have Florida panthers that hide in the trees, rarely seen by humans. We have massive, colorful pink birds that feed on crustaceans below the surface. We have black bears that can climb faster than they can walk. We have dolphins that carve up coasts in order to catch fish. 
We have some of the most spectacular plants and animals in Florida with rich histories and behaviors and lives, but, but these little love bugs have one of the most unique distinctions in the state. They are the most boring creature we've got. It's a strong opinion, I know, but it is the only thing that makes sense. In a state where mangroves can travel in order to preserve their lives, we also have bugs that very much like highways, and so they die by the thousands. Without question, that is why we have so many myths and so much folklore around them. Maybe somewhere in our subconscious we create these stories, because we cannot get over the fact that one of the most populous little pests around us are painfully, egregiously, hilariously blah. With all that in mind, I leave you with this. Love bugs are intrusive, yes, they were not originally from Florida. They have moved here, but they have adapted to our environment. Does an animal have to be interesting in order for you to want to conserve it and its environment? Must an ecosystem appeal to your empathy in order for you to throw your heart and soul into saving it? Do you need a cute face or an unusual behavior or an interesting story? Or can you still be motivated if the bug is a non-essential, weird little mutant bug that flies in pairs and splats on cars? Maybe it would be different if they were an experiment gone awry, but they're not. They're just bugs. And whether we like it or not, we have to save them too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please feel free to leave a review or, and this is a big one, share with a friend. We're on Twitter and on Instagram. You can share the links on Facebook. I know you know someone who would like this show. All you have to do is share the link. Say, hey, I'm enjoying this show. It would really mean a lot to me because little things like that can help a little show like this one grow. The Twitter is at Wait5Minutes and the Instagram is at Wait5MinutesPodcast. You can also shoot me an email at Wait5MinutesPodcast at gmail.com. I'm always looking for episode suggestions, especially for this upcoming July. Please let me know if there's something you want me to talk about. I will gladly do the research. I have announced all of the episodes from April into May on the social media channels. If you want to see what's coming up, please check those out. I'm very excited about the episodes coming, especially the next two. Next week, I will be talking about the Gulf Breeze sightings, our most famous UFO story in Florida. After that, on the first episode of May, I will be talking with Gilbert King, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Devil in the Grove and Beneath the Ruthless Sun about Okahumka, a little town in Lake County. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco, and all of the links used in the research can be found in the description below, along with the titles of the songs. That's it for me. Please feel free to listen to older episodes if you haven't already. I'm really proud of all of them, and I genuinely think if you enjoyed this one, you will enjoy every other show in the catalog. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next Friday. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more water with a reusable water bottle. Have a good week, everyone. <music>